Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. Glad you could join us today. As always, I am joined by the co-host, the good doctor. Doctor is in, Mr. Mike Groman. Mike, how you doing? Doing great. How are you doing? Doing good. It's just nice to feel a little bit of warmth on your skin when you go outside there. Uh, we've had some really cold days recently, but we are in store for a couple of really warm ones. So it's nice to sort of feel like spring out there a little bit. Yeah, we're feeling like spring and the dogs are tracking in mud. So we're cleaning off their feet every time that they come in from outside, but I'll take it. Well, dirty floors, I think are a pretty common sign that spring is on the way uh, in, in this neck of the woods. And speaking of spring on the way, our guest today is Lucy Mayon and she's from South Carolina. So I'm sure it already feels like spring in her neck of the woods. And so we have routinely talked about sending us your pictures, sending us your stories because we might just find one really interesting and invite you on the show. And Lucy is the first person to sort of crack that barrier. She sent us a while back photos of a really cool buck that she shot, a real trophy. And not all trophies are 200 inch Boone and Crockett record book deer. This is a nice buck, don't get me wrong, but it's got some unique qualities and we're gonna get into that with her. So anxious to hear her story. And so it's just a reminder to those of you listening we're not that far off of a hunting season. I know you have stories and especially if they're really interesting and cool, uh, send them our way and we might invite you to be on the show. And Lucy took advantage of that. Hey, our sponsor today is Browning. Uh, Browning is a extremely familiar brand to deer hunters all across the country. And this is timely because right now at the NDA, we are having our hunting for love sweepstakes. And so love in this case, hunting for love means we are giving away a couple Browning X-Bolt medallion in 6.5 Creedmoor. And we're giving away Browning A-Bolt 3 composite stalker also in 6.5 Creedmoor. Uh, We're going to draw three winners. These are very, very nice prizes. And this is a very nice uh, sweepstakes that we're doing here with our friends at Browning. And uh, Mike, I own a Browning rifle. Uh, it's, it's pretty darn good quality. These are excellent guns. And I've also had a little experience with a 6.5 Creedmoor. As a matter of fact, one of the does that I shot this year uh, when I was hunting in Missouri is with the 6.5. So it's also a very good deer round. Browning is a good name. I've used Browning equipment for a long time and there's going to be three lucky people out there that are going to be appreciating a new hunting rifle this hunting season. Yeah, it's just one of the ways we can take advantage of these relationships and sponsorships that we have. And of course, Browning is a proud partner of the NDA. So definitely check that out. If you haven't already, you can go find that on our website, deerassociation.com. This ends on March 1st. So you've got a little bit of time uh, to jump in on that. Ask NDA anything. This is an off week for that, but it's just a reminder to get your questions in because right now I don't have any. And it seems like I always have to kind of urge people the week before we read them. And typically a few come in. So ask NDA anything. If you want to know, for example, uh, what the doctor's go-to hunting rifle might be if he had to shoot a deer to save his life, that would be a good question. If you want to know if under Kip Adams's hat that he still has hair or not, that would be a good question to ask. Uh, Any of those are, are... uh, certainly on the table. So get creative or just ask us a serious question. If you want to answer to something serious, we're happy to answer that as well. So ask Andy anything. We'll be reading them on the next show. So get your questions in and you might just win yourself 
the coveted NDA membership hat. All right. I say we just jump right into it, Mike. Let's go ahead and bring in our guest, Lucy May on and hear this story about this really cool buck that she shot. Lucy, it's great to see you. Glad that you could come on and do the show with us here today. Lucy Mayon, she shot her uh, shot her best buck last season, and it's the antlers are part of it, but there's a lot more to it than that. And Lucy is actually someone you hear us say on the show all the time: send us your pictures. We want to see your pictures, and you just might end up finding yourself on the Coffee and Deer show. And that's what happened to you, Lucy. So uh, thanks a lot for doing this. How about you introduce yourself? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I feel really humbled to be in the company of uh, your your show so far. I mean, y'all have done such an outstanding job with Sean Luckdull and, um, you know, my, my fellow South Carolinian, South Carolinian, CJ Davis with Montana Decoys. I enjoyed listening and um, it's just an honor to, to be a part of this. So thanks for having me. Well, it's our privilege and I, Mike, do you ever recall anyone ever saying it was an honor to talk to us? I mean, this, <laughs> I think this is a first first time. I was I was getting ready to say, "Hey, Nick, cut for a second. I think we need to start over. She's on the wrong show." But <laughs> but well, uh, thank you for your kind words. But uh, truthfully, at the end of the day, we're, we're just glad to have you on to be able to tell your dear story. Yeah, yeah, we love we love giving people the opportunity to share their story, and uh, that's what got me excited about deer all the way back when I was young. It's just hearing the stories and I still love to hear them and we can't wait to hear yours. And so just before we get into that, though, let's learn a little bit more about you, where you, where you grew up, how you got into hunting, whatever you want to share. Well, so I am part of what I would consider a hunting culture family. Um, my father was the one that uh, introduced me to hunting. Um, I was one of two girls. And I think without a son that was going to be stamped officially as his hunting bunny buddy. He just kind of threw us both out there, my older sister and me, and I hoped that it would take to one of us at least. And it, it was not hard to get me to keep tagging along. And um, I just felt really at home in the woods and he was such an awesome teacher. Um, every day was an adventure. I probably started going along with him when I was four or five years old. Remember, you know, afternoons in the country shooting a 410 at nothing. And um, he was a big influence. And uh, my sister kind of fell off of the outdoor Saturdays and Sundays with dad as she got older, but I kind of just kept going. So um, that was kind of my introduction into the culture of hunting. But I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and um, uh, eventually moved to Charleston for about 10 years to go to physical therapy school and uh, came back to the Camden area, which is just kind of really a fantastic hunting grounds. Um, after about 10 years in Charleston, after the market crashed, actually, I needed a, uh, a, a cheaper place to live and Camden kind of fit the bill, had some family in the area um, and kind of have, have been in the Camden area ever since. So, um, but that's kind of how I got introduced. My father is the real answer. Well, kudos to your father, because we hear so many stories from, uh, you know, women that were at one time young girls, and they tell the stories about how their dad always took their brother out or never thought to ask them to go. 
And we've even had some of our field to fork participants say that. That uh, I remember Kathleen Saviano talking about how she was told she was a bad shot and really never had a chance to prove otherwise. It's just that it was very disheartening. So um, I think the South, or at least in the area that I grew up, was really good for uh, there were not a lot of other women or girls at the time hunting, but it it just never seemed to be a problem. And whenever I wanted to go, I would go and sometime in middle school i started uh tagging along with you know boyfriends out to their adventures as well and i think i just expressed enough interest and was enthusiastic enough about it to keep getting invited so it, it grew from there so i'm going to jump in with a question just because you and i do have a lot in common but um i do have a daughter that i did introduce to hunting and she she loves it even to this day. I guess what I want to hear is that time that you might've been in, in college and in physical therapy school, since we are both physical therapists. So we have that in common. So, you know, awesome job on that for you. But um, the one thing that I always tell my friends that they worry when their daughters get into to college, and especially if they move away from home, the good thing is that for the past two years, my daughter has come back to the fold, if you will, now that she's actually out and you know, has started her career. And a lot of people fear that, but I've always said that if, if you teach them right and have them enjoy themselves the entire time, that they'll always come back in some way, shape or form. Uh, tell us your story about when you had to go off to school, because we well, know that college can be pretty rigorous. That's, that is funny that you're taking it there because the, the natural break in hunting that I think does happen with school a lot, when you have to focus on other things, had actually occurred for a different reason for me. And it's a huge part of my hunting story. I, um, I killed my first deer in 1988 when I was 12 years old and shot that with a, a Ruger 44 Magnum that had iron sights on it. My father made me earn my first decent gun. And he said, you're gonna have to kill one with this one first. And so I remember I did that in October um, when I was 12 and got a 243 um, Winchester Youth Ranger for Christmas and that was a big upgrade. I had a scope and um, started really kind of wanting to shoot my first buck. You know, that was like the next progression. My first year was a really small doe. I mean, I think it weighed like 68 pounds. They rounded up and called it 70 and everybody was real excited <laughs> about that for me. But, you know, I was, I was, I knew, I knew there was more to be had. And um, so one night out at the hunting club, uh, I think, I think it was the same year. No, it couldn't have been because the season ended in January. So it must've been the year I was 13. Um, I was, you know, after my first big buck and shot a decent buck. It was probably a six point right outside the ears or right at the ears. And, um, and we trailed it and tracked it and it crossed a Creek and we lost it. And it was a cold night and we brought the dogs back the next morning. And I, learned a lot, but we never recovered the deer. And it just broke my heart. And I knew, cause I had shot that rifle enough. I know my father would have made sure I was at least proficient shooting it before I hunted with it. And um, it just broke my heart to, to lose something. And um, one, of the, one of the other gentlemen at the hunting club that night said, if you want to never lose a deer again, do you know where to aim? And I said, no, sir. And I had been taught, you know, the heart lung area and look for the little elbow and, um, you know, two, 
two thirds, one thirds, all the ratios that we are taught about shot placement. And he showed me where to spine shoot a deer. And um, so not knowing that that was not necessarily a lethal shot, the next deer that walked in the field was a decent sized doe and I shot that doe in the spine and I fell apart. <laughs> it is a long story short. Um, the deer was not lethally shot and struggled on the ground for a long time. And I hope this isn't something that I shouldn't be talking about. Um, and I got down and finished the deer at very close range and kind of fell into a heap. And my father had heard me shoot, was not with me, uh, was close. And I think he must have come around the corner. It was something like out of the yearling when Jody dropped the gun, you know. And, uh, and, and I ran over to him and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And it was just awful scene. And he was so sweet and embraceive. And um, that was the last year I shot for almost 20 years. So uh, I, I just decided that I was gonna be fine with the fur and, um, and not, excuse me, not the fur, the feathers and the fin, but leave the fur out of it in terms of hunting. And I wasn't horrible shot uh at, at wing shooting at the time i had not been taught really how to do that so i really didn't hunt that much i just fished really through college and um graduate school and i was in charleston it was just a great place to fish so I, I did not hunt during that time so working my way back to the fold actually had everything to do you'll appreciate this because i know you're a dog person with getting a dog um i got a big black lab named duke because I was also a big basketball fan and named him after the university <laughs> did not go there. Sorry for all the UNC Chapel Hill fans out there, but Duke got me back into hunting because I, I wanted to become a better wing shooter. And, um, he was a great dog and was trained by a really wonderful kennel in Camden or in Boykin, South Carolina, actually. And, um, my friends were like, you have to learn how to shoot birds better if you're going to hunt this dog. So I started focusing on that and that kind of got me into the feathers again. And there was an infamous man uh, that lived in the Boykin area named Alan Wooten, um, who interestingly enough had a cameo on Southern Charm because Shep Rose um, is part of that family in that area. And he brought a big group of people up to go hog hunting with Alan. And um, Alan was just a legend and was uh, tragically killed hog hunting in a four-wheeling accident some years, about two or three years ago, um, but became a mentor and he got me into hog hunting. And all of a sudden I started feeling a little more okay about killing things of that nature again. And it was very exciting. Hog hunting was like a cross between NASCAR and a barroom brawl fight. Um, we were pursuing with 30-06 red dot rifles, guns, dogs, you know, knife at times. It was super exciting and really kind of peeled the wounds off of that original, you know, little 13-year-old girl's heart. Um, and I, I got kind of toughened up to killing things again and started, of course, enjoying eating everything that we were killing with the, with the pork and the hog. So um, I decided that if I could still shoot for, for hogs, I could maybe think about trying to shoot a deer again. Um, and so I, my dad gave me another rifle for Christmas, really kind of just assuming that I was still hunting, I think. Um, it was a Winchester 270, Model 70, 270. 
And I went out and shot a hog with that. And the next year I was like, okay, I'm ready to shoot a deer again and started hunting again. And that was at age 36, I started hunting deer again. I'm 45. Um, so long story short, my breakthrough school, or I should, should say like long story long, cause that was a really long answer to your question. It, it was, it was a traumatic break for me. It wasn't an intentional one. Um, and I kind of just gradually got led back into it through bird hunting and then hog hunting and then shooting deer again. And once, once I was shooting them again, I was fine. Um, but it, I think the story is still a testament to being careful where you get your advice from <laughs> your father, instead of an old man sitting around the table that doesn't know you that well. Well, and, and I appreciate you saying that because that's where I really wanted to you know bring this back because I like to point out important points for people so that I'm all about not making mistakes if you can at all help it. And the one thing that, you know, you just summed up very nicely was the fact that you do have to get your information from reliable vetted sources. And you know, I mean, everyone has their opinion and that's fine, but when you actually get advice, that's bad advice, it can be very detrimental to a young hunter's career. And it's just very good for you that you're persistent enough to hang in there. But just like we've heard with other people, uh, especially with the, the field, the fork uh, podcast that we did, it's, it's a lot of people really want to be proficient. They do not want to wound animals. We, we do as hunters and all of us, not just new hunters, but all of us really want to be as proficient as possible because we do have a very deep respect for that animal and to carry it forward. We want to be proficient and we understand that responsibility that goes along with that. So uh, glad to have you back. Well, it, it was, a, um, it was a great, I think sometimes it, it's helpful to make a grievous error early. And, and even though in my case, it caused the long pause, um, I think it has, it has been a point because of course now in my old age, I'm doing a lot more mentoring, but it's been my mission to save everybody from that bad advice. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times I've had you know, young people out hunting and I'm like, okay, when was your gun sighted in? If it wasn't sighted in, you're not hunting with me that day. And so all, all my little young people are, are trained to make sure that they're, they're they know that their weapons firing correctly or they're not coming. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a big point. Well, good on you for being such a great ambassador. And I gotta uh, go back to something you said you were concerned about, uh, whether or not you should talk about having to have a follow-up shot and that happens you know we can't i think it's great to talk about that and I, I think it's also uh you know we learned a lot from that story that you told about how that kept you out of hunting for quite a while because you were so concerned about not having to do that again and it is a reality of of the sport and you know you hope that it don't ha doesn't happen but it does on occasion and the most important thing though is what exactly what you did is that you you follow it up and you you uh, down the animal as quickly as possible. So I think it's perfectly fine to talk about that. I got to ask you, you mentioned you were, you liked wing shooting. So what's your favorite though? Are you, are you more of a wing shooter or a deer shooter? Or you just like to hunt them all? I, I would say at this point, what's interesting is my, my deer passion is now growing. Um, turkeys are, have always been my answer on that. It's, 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 it, it is an obsession. Um, it, it is, I don't think any other sport gives can give you three hours of boredom 
with 15 minutes that's that exciting after the three hours of boredom. Um, I, uh, I, I, there's nothing like a turkey goblin and coming in from behind you and just holding still and praying that he comes into view and watching those birds and just the, un, the inability to figure them out. I mean, if any animal is never going to be figured out, it's got to be a turkey. Um, so they, they drive us crazy and, and make you, I mean, I don't know if it's as, as frustrating as golf because I don't play golf, but I feel like a lot of golfers can relate to turkey hunting. Like, it's like, why do you keep punishing yourself out here doing this? But the, 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 th the thrill of a bird flopping on the ground is hard to beat for me. Um, so I, yeah. It's uh, my answer, my go-to answer is still turkeys. So I, I love waterfowl too, but um, I love it all. But turkeys is still my biggest thrill. I, I'm having trouble staying in my chair because as I think about turkey hunting and the way you described it, and it, you're a listener of the show, so you've heard some of Mike and I's turkey exploits. Uh, we have made yes. real fools of ourselves uh, doing that more than any other activity. And our 15 minutes of excitement usually has nothing to do with the turkey actually coming in. So uh, it's all the other reasons. So I just, I love that story and we can both appreciate that very much. It, it is, it is amazing how frustrating it can be. So I, I loved y'all's escapades with the, with the deer working for the turkeys. My dad used to always say that all every, every spring, all the turkeys turn into deer and every fall, all the deer turn into turkeys. And I have witnessed that for sure. Yeah, it seems a like real phenomenon. Time. All right, so let's let's catch our breath here, and I want to I want to introduce the story of the buck that you shot last season, which is a really special deer. Uh, they're all special, but this one's unique. You sent photos of it, uh, which they just you took great photos, by the way. Thank you for doing that. I see so many people they put so much effort into the hunt, and then it comes time to memorialize the experience and they take a really bad picture you clearly took the time to take some very nice pictures so thank you for that and so let's let's talk about your deer and I'll just I'll tell people up front that this deer is very unique and that not only is it a nice racked buck but it's also a spotted buck and so we'll get into a little more detail on that in a second but let's go back to it's coming about time for the season to start heading into the season did you have any particular hopes for the season no that's such a great question because um i think at this point for me i've, I've really enjoyed the management side of land and it's kind of because i haven't had such a large passion about deer hunting uh the passion really has been to just grow deer and watch you know young boys get their first deer or um, you know, somebody that's not a hunter, um, young boys or girls, obviously. Um, we've had uh, lots of youth out hunting on this lease. There, it's 840 acres, not contiguous, two separate tracks that are really close that um, I've, have had the wonderful fortune of essentially managing for the last five to six years. And um, we've been working on growing bigger deer um, that whole time, uh, and it's really starting to pay off. Um, finally killed uh, my first big buck um, the year before um, on November the 22nd in 2020. Um, it was a seven point and it was six, 16 and a quarter inch um, widespread. It was a beautiful deer and my nephew was with me. So going into this season, 
I had really already kind of ticked it off as far as I was concerned. I was, I was done. I had killed one big buck and I was fine shooting does for the rest of my life. I had waited so long for that to happen. And it was such a perfect day. And I know I'm not here to tell that story, but I mean, my, my nephew is like one of my, my dad, and my nephew, some of my best friends. And the fact that he was in the stand with me that day was just huge because we never hunt together anymore. I mean, he's a grown kid. Like we, we're done with that. And, um, but we just happened to sit together that day. And so that was really special. So going into this season, um, I was just excited for really the other members, um, uh, what we were seeing on camera and just kind of managing all that and talking to people about what was on camera early. We had a really nice palmated buck that um, people were really excited about. We had another uh, 12, 13 point, just crazy atypical rack that people were really excited about. And then we had this ridiculously symmetrical eight point that has to be a good five and a half year old deer that's just huge that everybody was salivating over. And so those were the three deer that we were looking at on camera that were really the target deer. This deer was nowhere to be found in August when we started running trail cameras because of course our season opens August 15th for archery. South Carolina having, I do believe, the longest season of any state. Is that correct? Uh, if it's not the longest, it's right up there. Yep. Yeah. So, um, and, and for me, deer season really doesn't start until October because I just refuse to go out there in September and August. It's too hot for me. And, you know, the bugs are so bad. I don't care how many thermocells you have. So I really was just doing all that work, kind of showing it to other people and excited for them to be excited about what, what we were growing because we've been working so hard to grow nice deer. So you didn't have, it sounds like anyway, that you did not have any history with this particular deer, no trail camera photos of it, nothing like that. Nothing. Um, I had seen one piebald deer on this property uh, the previous year and it was a little spike like they do tend to be. Um, it had a, a much greater uh, variation um, more, a lot more white. I mean, just, it looked like a typical piebald deer. Um, and, uh, and I had kind of tried to hunt that deer a little bit the previous year, just cause I had the previous year, cause I'd never killed a piebald and, um, but it disappeared before I could make contact with it again. So, um, no, had never seen this deer. I don't think I told you this or sent you the picture, but the first picture I got of this deer was probably around Halloween weekend and it was a nocturnal picture and I didn't recognize that it was spotted. Hmm. I just thought it, I was like, what is all over that deer? Was it wet that night or had he walked under a tree and like gotten some sort of powder or did he really have that many ticks? I could not tell what it was, but in retrospect, I actually sent the picture to the neighbor landowner, we have a really good relationship. We send each other pictures back and forth all the time. And I said, what is wrong with this deer? It almost, I said, it almost looks like he's spotted. And Wilder's response was, gosh, you know, it does. But I mean, that can't possibly be. Well, especially the unique spotting pattern that's on the deer. And by the way, we posted Lucy's a picture on the Deer Association Instagram page you're up to just about a thousand likes on that, but actually you are, you're over a thousand likes of that photo, by the way, on our Instagram cool. page, you can check it out there. And of course, when we promote the show, you can check it out on that as well. We'll, we'll be sure to share pictures. And so, yeah, I mean, the deer that 
you end up taking is, is extremely unique, but let's, let's go to, you're getting ready to go hunting. Just sort of walk us through that day. How, how did the hunt unfold and how did it go down? Well, so I'll, I'll back you up just a little bit. He showed up on November the 9th and, um, I had pulled cards the day after that on the 10th. And so the very next morning I went and sat on the ground at this particular stand, which one of our members had put up a bow stand there. Um, there was not, I had never planned on hunting this particular spot at all. Cause it was on the road on the way in the property. So anybody that was going in and out at the top of the property was going to have to ride down this road. So it was a horrible place to put a stand just because of the traffic. It kind of blocked everybody outside of the property. Um, so I sat on the road and on Saturday morning, on Sunday morning, and decided that this was just a bad setup sitting on the ground and that I was going to have to get up in that bow stand somehow. But I'm not a bow hunter. And the bow, the shot was a, a 30, 40 yard bow shot. Um, so that Saturday I had previously committed to going to a Clemson football game and couldn't go. And when I got back at like midnight that night, I was like, I have to go. He's going to be there. And I've got to find a way to just go ahead and climb that bow stand, take a rifle and figure it out. And I slept in. Oh no. I had, and and he, he was there. Oh. He was there. So I, I pulled the camper card Sunday evening and he was there and I, my stomach just dropped because I thought, okay, that was it. I mean, he's, he's not going to come back. And, um, that was your one chance. So, um, I, I, I was like, well, I'm going to go anyway, every day this week. And, and, and if, if he's not there, so be it. But I had committed at that point. So that evening before dark, I climbed, I, I got my harness on and climbed the bow stand, even though I'm not a bow hunter, I actually do have a bow and I had the harness, but I've just never gotten into it and um, had a shooting stick. And I just practiced this little setup. Like, was it going to work? Was the shooting stick going to fall through the grate? You know, could I hold because there was no gun rest and I knew I'd be shaking like a leaf when I, if I got a chance to shoot this deer. So I, I, I figured I could put a shooting stick on my boot, get the gun up, and I felt confident that I'd be able to take a decent shot. So I hunted every morning, Monday, Tuesday, to take you up to Wednesday morning. So on Tuesday afternoon, I decided because I, I happened to work and drive past the taxidermist I stopped by his place and showed him a picture of the deer and I said I'm, I'm not gonna stop hunting this deer until I find him this week and uh if I shoot him you know and, and wanted to do something special with the mouth you know can I call you and he was like absolutely you know don't let anybody touch the deer I'll come skin it all the way out and so I had kind of alerted the taxidermist on Tuesday you called thinking, your shot <laughs> Well, I, I, I guess that's what it was. I mean, I honestly thought that it was a pointless conversation and I only stopped by there, honestly, to check on the progress of a speckled belly goose that they were doing for me. I actually uh, owed them money for the, so I had two reasons to be there. Yeah. I was not quite calling my shot, but I like the way you put that. So, um, anyway, I, uh, I got up Wednesday morning and it was still, and it just didn't feel like a day to shoot a deer, if you'll follow me on that. And I thought, this is just pointless. I, I, he's, he's, I already missed my chance. 
I really didn't have a good attitude going into it. So I, I parked and walked in and, and got up and I just kind of sat there for a minute and really kind of, it was a beautiful morning. I think I remember uh, the doctor describing his morning dough shot with just the sun silhouette in the background. It was kind of just a, a painting in the sky, this beautiful red sunrise. And, and I could hear some turkeys and the birds were kind of waking up and I thought, I just need to be happy to be here this morning. And my work schedule had allowed for this hunt to occur. And I really had enough flexibility to make this occur. Um, really all week long, I pushed everybody late. And I was just kind of settled into a thankfulness mode there for a minute. And um, there were some doves feeding on the corn because, of course, we can bait in South Carolina. And I just kind of kept looking and looking and looking and and. I could hear something kind of coming from out in front of me and I, the wind was good. So I, I knew it, it, there was hardly any, but if there was any, it was in my face. So I was good on that. And, uh, and I looked down and I, it was too dark to tell if it was him, but I remember thinking, I think that's him. And I said, just watch him. And I got my gun kind of in a halfway up position. So I wouldn't have to move a whole lot. And I literally had to wait on the light to come in to really verify that it was him. And so there he is working in like a cautious older deer would really, really, really slowly did not look um, like he was suspecting anything wrong in the woods that day. And he just kept pausing and he'd take two steps and he'd pause and he'd take two more steps. And he was coming in to the, to the corn, which was gonna be moving from my left to right and so I, I have my gun up and I thought, well, there's a, there's a perfect tree for me to move to my final position. He'll move behind that. I'll get in final position and wait on a shot when he comes through the other side. So that was kind of my plan because I was very exposed in this bow stand and I didn't want to move a lot and wanted to take my time and not be rushed. And so I was trying to slow my heartbeat down. I was just out of my chest on this one. And um, so he went behind the tree, I got the gun up and he froze. And he, I'm pretty sure he smelled me on the game camera from checking it. Mm. I mean, something was wrong. And, and he whipped his head around and kind of looked and I was like, no way, no way is this gonna happen. And then I started just praying, please don't run, please don't run. And he just kind of turned around like he was leaving and he said, so he's directly walking away from me. And I have the gun in a position where I could spine shoot this deer at this point. Well, you know, my history with that. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. If so be it. If, it if, if, if that's the only shot I've got, I'll watch him walk away. And, and I just remember thinking, all I need you to do is turn left or right. And I'll get enough broadside to take a good shot quartering away. And finally, like, as I'm about to lose him, he quarters away to the right. And I thought, okay, this is my moment. Took a deep breath and I squeezed and I saw him run off, clearly hit, stumbling. So I, I, I knew I hadn't shot behind him because his right leg was very involved in his stumble out. So I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this just happened. I, I felt like I hit him well, but I saw him run a good ways. And my father is always said, you know, the 20 minute rule at the minimum. So in order to time that, um, I sent 
uh, a few text messages out just to kind of catalog it, you know, like, so the first one I sent was to my father. I thought you were going to um, say the taxidermist. <laughs> that was the second one. That was the second one. That was the second one. So the first one I sent was to my father. And then I, I did because the taxidermist had specifically asked me to, call, you know, he was like, let me know as soon as you shoot him so I can plan to be there. So I, I sent it to, to Vince and uh, then a, a couple of other good friends. Um, y'all may, uh, I don't know if you know Joe Miles with, uh, uh, ICO camouflage. He's a good friend from South Carolina. He's a wonderful guy. Um, and he, he's been a real big supporter of mine through this. And he knew I was, there were a couple of people that knew I was hunting this deer. So I sent it really to all those people and just kind of sat there and, and tried to return to breathing again. Um, and so when I got down, um, and started looking, that kind of takes us into a, a whole different story, but, um, it was, it was quite a trail, but that was, that was how the shot occurred. So. I'm still going all the way back to when I said you called your shot, Mike, I don't know about you, but anytime I'm in the woods and I see a, like, especially a good buck coming and I start daydreaming about what it'll look like on the wall. It, that's the end of the hunt. Like it's, it doesn't end well. Well, and I, I have the same, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the same thing and it's to me, it's all about, do I get nervous? And if my knees start to shake, if, if I look at that deer coming, whether it's walking right at me or it's where it's going to give me a shot, if my knees start to shake and I get nervous, I will, I have never, and this is, this is a guy's honest truth, 52 years old. I've never killed that deer. But if I'm sitting there just rock solid stone cold killer, that's that deer's done. And it's like yeah. the weirdest thing. And, and I get so mad at myself. Like if my knees start to shake, I'm like, darn it. I almost at that point, I'm like, it's done. It's over. It's not happening. And it never has. I've not once, not once deviated from that for some of that strange reason, you know, my, that strange reaction. It's like mental confidence just dictates how everything's going to go down. So speaking of wobbly legs, Lucy, you probably had to be a little bit of a challenge to get out of that tree. It, and, it was for sure. You, well, then you, you hit the ground and it's time to pick up the trail. And it sounds like there's more to the story here. Yeah, it was, uh, it was not a good blood trail. Um, I, uh, I, I went over to where I shot him and, uh, didn't see anything and, uh, you know, had luckily seen what direction he took off. Um, and I was really having trouble finding first blood for about the first 10 yards around. And that immediately got me concerned. Um, especially feeling like I knew I'd hit him and I was like, oh gosh, you know, I, I, it was Wednesday at, uh, gosh, like, I think I shot the deer at, at uh, probably about like 658 sunrise that morning. Um, I think was, was right around 658. Yeah. I shot him at, at 647. Um, and so this, you know, by the time I got down, it was seven o'clock. On a Wednesday, it's not like I had a whole lot of people I could call to come help look. Um, and so I, I started, I was, it was, it had been a chilly morning. So I don't know if, if y'all have ever done this, but I, I, my dad always taught me to put my hat down because I was wearing orange, you know. And, and so I put my orange hat down on the first mark always. It's just my habit. And then um, my dad's also always made me carry pink flagging tape. And he's like, you never know um 
whether or not it's going to make sense to mark. So just start marking. You know, you can always take the tape up. So I start marking my trail, marking a couple of things, and I'm finding a little bit here, a little bit there, but really struggling for 10 to 15 yards in between each little clump of blood. And then I finally, a good 75 yards into this of not much, not much, I, I think the deer had, had kind of taken a lean against a tree and, uh, and blown a little bit and uh, just stood there long enough to pick up a little bit more blood in that spot. And then it, it picked up consistently after that, um, but still not great. And um, I realized after the fact, when I got to the deer, why I had pulled a little bit in front, um, a lot in front. And uh, I asked Victor when he skinned the deer to let me know if I had nicked the heart, you know, if that was, or if I had just gotten lucky, because I was really concerned that I had missed completely in front. And he said, you, you nicked it. I mean, it was literally like a nick. So um I got lucky on that. Um, the deer was 175 yards into the woods total and I was alone. I weigh 145 and that was an interesting pullout. I, I had a lot of adrenaline, but it got hot. And let's just say just about all of my clothes came off. I was so hot and it was about 10 yards at a time. So 10 times 17, it, it took a minute. And, um, I had been at that football game the Saturday before and had cleared everything out of my truck because I didn't want to leave anything valuable in the back, my cooler. Um, and normally I have always been able to get game as a you know, small woman that's still strong. I mean, a physical therapist, I, I lift people a lot, but um, you know, a 200 pound pig, I can't put in the truck by myself, but I can hop it up on my cooler and, you know, tie the legs up and then bring the rest of it. I've, I've, I've gotten real, it, I've turned into a pretty good engineer on stuff like that. My cooler was not in my truck. So I get the deer out, uh, did take the time to take some pictures, um, ended up taking a few more when I realized I needed help to get him in. So I tried to get him in the truck, realized that wasn't gonna happen and started calling around. Luckily, um, some members of the hunt club uh, the price, the price fellas don't live too far away. And one of their sons was home, a 20 year old young strapping lad that was able to come rescue me and help me get the deer in the car. And other than the people, the taxidermist, nobody else got to see this deer dead, which um, was um, kind of almost a regret in the whole story was that he wasn't shot on a Friday night with a full house at, at deer camp. Um, it was kind of, I guess, meant to be a, a solitary endeavor for me. So Keaton Price was the only one besides the taxidermist that, that ever saw this deer on the ground, um, which is just crazy when you think about how special of a deer it was. Um, so when, when I got Keaton in route, uh, I, I kind of slowed down and took a few more pictures and the sun was really changing coming through the trees. And I was appreciating the fact that the pictures actually might be getting better and better. So I, um, I have a magnet on the back of my phone that I plant to the edge of the car and put it on the self timer and uh, snapped off a, a few more pictures until Keaton got there. And then we loaded it in the truck and took it to the processor and uh, Victor came and skinned it out for me. And we decided to 
go with like a, a two thirds body mount with him jumping out of the wall with his feet tucked like over a fence. So I was like, what are you, you going to do? I mean, you know, it's, I'm never going to see a deer like that again. So you might as well spend a couple thousand, you know, a thousand dollars on the mount. <laughs> well, well, if, if everyone remembers back, she still owes the tax service money for that speckle that she has. Yes. So <laughs> she's just, she's just racking them up this yeah. year. So if, I mean, if you're, yeah, if you're in the hole, just, just keep digging. I basically have to stop by there like every day and drop off a hundred dollars. So it's, it's, it is a significant bill this year. So, so we, 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 this, the, the price boys and I went, went uh, duck hunting after Christmas and um, I was the, the second shot and the, the lethal shot on just an, an awesome canvas back. And the first guy looked at me and he was like, are you going to mount that duck? And I said, no, you can have it. I'm done. Well, that's a problem we all wish we had. You know, just shot, just shot too many trophies this year. Can't, can't afford to get them all mounted. So, well, uh, I hope that folks see the pictures of the deer. Like I said, they're on the National Deer Association Instagram uh, page, and also we'll, we'll certainly post them as we promote the show. But it's uh, for those just listening, the deer is. Uh, it's a beautiful deer. It's uh, aside from the rack itself, the deer is pretty much spotted, uh, not exactly like a fawn. A lot of the spots are up around the, the back and a few down the side, but even a few on the face. But it's just very unique. And like you said, it, it's worth doing the extra taxidermy on this one because realistically, you have a, probably a better chance of shooting a couple of 150 inch deer than you would be to ever shoot a second deer that looks like this. So this is a Trophies come in all shapes and sizes, but this is a really, really cool trophy. And I think you I think I'm definitely that. done now. I'm definitely done now. <laughs> so. Well, you, you can't be done. I mean, I think you, I think you still have more to do, but this is, this is pretty awesome. And, and we certainly want to congratulate you on that. Well, I felt really humbled to be the person that got to pull the trigger on this one. It was, um, you know, a couple of people have been like, why didn't you just let that one go? You know, like, I think the American native uh, Indians were thought it was bad luck to shoot a pop ball. I think the legend goes. And uh, uh, as my father pointed out to my mother, if she wouldn't have shot it, somebody else would have. So uh, I guess it was just meant to be uh, a date with destiny for, for that deer and me to meet up. And um, I, I really kind of keep going back to, um, to uh, gosh, who was it? Uh, Bo, uh, Montauk, because I used to Bo Martonic. Martonic. Yeah, he was talking about when he killed that really big deer, and like you know, they drug it across a river, and you know, everybody kept showing up in pickup trucks, and you know, the deer camp party. It was, it was, it was not meant to be with this deer. This deer was just kind of harvested in peace and quiet, and uh, it was just me and the deer for a long time, waiting on Keaton to come help me get in the truck. So, um, it was, it was a special, special moment. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think it probably went down just the way that it, that it should have. And you did an amazing job telling the story, everything from trying to balance the shooting stick on your boot. And like, I was right there. I don't know about you, doctor, but I was, I was like, I was right there in the stand with her. Well, we get to see her, her facial expressions here, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's just so amazing to me because my stories, they, they tend to blend, but I really appreciate someone that actually has 
such a great recall. It, like that, that moment is so impactful that they can recite it and almost put you right there. Like you're watching a, like you're watching it, like you're sitting right there with them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I just want to add Lucy, you broke the ice. You're the first coffee and beer listener that followed through, sent pictures and ended up on the show. And I think I'm hoping that there are other people out there with cool stories like yours that hear this, because this is a, this is the whole point of the show to share stories like this. Yeah. Sometimes we have to share some more serious stuff or just give you news about what's going on in the deer world. But this is stories like this. You mentioned having, you know, Bo Martonic, his stories, uh, this is what it's all about. And you really, you just did a tremendous job and we're so thankful that you took the time to share it with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to share the story in such great company. Y'all are doing such a great job. I've, I've definitely uh, been listening and going to continue to listen. Um, it's, it's always fun to hear you and the doctor go back and forth on the pre and post guest part of the segment. It's uh, don't, don't stop doing that. It's my, it's kind of my favorite part. It's even though, I mean, y'all have brought such incredible guests on the show. Um, keep, keep up the good work. Y'all are, it, it's, it, I'm learning something every time I listen. And that's, that's what it's all about. I think being out in the woods, if you're, that was another one of my father's rules. If, you know, whenever I got in the truck from a hunt, he always said, well, what'd you learn today? You know, cause there was never a day wasted in the woods as long as you learn something. And I'm sure y'all can speak uh, to that point as well, whether it's, uh, you know, not dropping your range finder and being on the B team or, uh, <laughs> something else <laughs> um you know the uh, the interesting part uh you'll get a kick out of this actually uh for 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 the longest time i kept trying to figure out why y'all were using the dog de-shedding tool to plant your food plots you know that's called a ferminator so uh, i finally looked it up online it looks like the actual ferminator is is probably a pretty cool product so but i've I, i've been looking up all of the the sponsors and um really excited about uh, just how many people y'all are uh, able to bring on the show and highlight that are doing such amazing conservation work behind their products. Um, I think that's for me been what I've enjoyed most about listening to the show. It's been like, how can I um, learn more about the people who are, are, are doing it right out there? Um, and y'all are doing a great job bringing that content to it. Um, I, I didn't know anything about the Sportsman's Alliance until I was listening. And that was a fantastic segment. Um, so I'm happy to be aware of that. I mean, I, I was one of those people that thought the Humane Society was an awesome place to give money for animals. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you don't know what you don't know, right? Oh, uh, just uh, for the record, Lucy, your check is in the mail. <laughs> yeah, my mother doesn't say nice stuff like that about me. So this is, you know, I'm feeling or very our wives. So, yeah, good. Well, I didn't even. Yeah, I mean never even crossed my I mind mean, so i mean i almost i almost want this podcast not to end because i have to go back to reality where i'm just like a complete and total rummy after this so <laughs> well, well we, we we do appreciate that you listen lucy and please keep listening tell your friends about us and again thank you so much for being on with us it was great to be here thanks so much i was highly entertained by that mike it's like i said at the at the beginning there are lots of different ways to measure trophies and we all have our own personal definitions of those. And this deer though, as I mentioned during the interview, she probably has a better chance of killing two 150 inch deer back to back than she would be of shooting another nice buck 
that has a spotted coat like the one she shot. Is you're right, and trophies in the eye of the beholder. But I think that Lucy holds the very unique title of shooting a trophy that anybody would consider a once in a lifetime deer, and and that is an accomplishment and an achievement. And I really appreciate how when she told the story, she took us there. She put us right in the stand with her. Well, also she had history with the deer. She knew about it and she specifically was going after this deer, which everybody that hunts knows how hard that can be to just say, I'm targeting this particular deer and to be able to get the opportunity and to maintain her composure, make the shot, recover the deer. And even frankly, I was, extremely impressed with her story about getting the deer out of the woods. I mean, she had her hands full, but she didn't let it deter. And she took care of that too. She did. And that just goes to, to show that, you know, she is, she's invested. I mean, she's a hunter from stem to stern and, and I appreciate, I appreciate her coming on and, and reaching out to us to, I mean, I guess we don't want to be those individuals that are, unapproachable, untouchable, if you will, in that kind of capacity. And the fact that she was willing to send this picture of a deer that she was very proud of, as she should be, just as a testament, I think, to NDA and just being a very approachable organization that has members and and, and the, the best interest of deer in mind. Yeah, it's, I love telling these stories. That's the whole really basis behind the, the coffee and deer show you're sitting around having coffee and you're telling deer stories and this was a good one and, and also you never are a hundred percent sure where some of these conversations may go i would say every interview we've ever done we end up going somewhere we probably didn't expect and in this one i thought it was really interesting the story she told about how she had stopped deer hunting for a long time because she had a bad experience got some bad advice but then eventually did come back to it and then found herself in the position to take this unique deer. I thought that was a really neat aspect of the story. It is. And I think that is, and you know me, I'm always trying to go for that, that next reach and thought process for everybody. But for those parents, uncles, aunts that are spending the time to mentor young children and I kind of off the, you know, field of fork topic, but just the traditional bringing young children up into a hunting world or family or even a neighbor, uh, things like that. What it comes down to, I think, is that the time that you're invested is really never wasted because you never know where it's going to take somebody in the future. So it's it's time well spent, whether it might be frustrating, whether you believe that, oh, I've done all this for that person and they don't hunt anymore. I still would say that, that that's not lost because when it comes time to vote or you know um, comment on policy or hunting, if you actually did a nice job with them, showed them a good time and shared with them your experience and what you love about it, they'll understand and they'll appreciate it in a way that they never could have if you never took that opportunity. So I wouldn't let them pass you by. No, good point for sure. Yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed the interview with Lucy. Speaking of showing people a good time, uh, Joe Hamilton and I were on the phone yesterday. Joe is the founder of QDMA one of our two parent organizations, and he also lives in South Carolina, and he's telling me about hearing turkeys gobbling down there already, so I'm a little jealous of that. I don't think we quite have turkeys gobbling here yet, unless you've heard some. I have not heard any just yet, but I'm starting to see the post 
trickle in on social media with people getting amped up to start to head south and uh, start to chase them. So we'll be after it pretty soon. But you have you have a pretty exciting weekend or next couple of days coming up. You have the infamous Ron Haas showing up to help you out here. Yes, the infamous Ron Haas. And that actually, I'm glad you went there because I was going to follow up with the, all the snow melting to say, we're finally in a position where I feel safe out there running around with chainsaws and doing some habitat work. We just had too much snow up until last weekend, but we've had a decent amount of warm weather. And so, yeah, Ron is going to drive over from Delaware and he's bringing chainsaws with him. He's also, by the way, he's bringing the last deer that I shot out there that I had, I had processed and I figured I would just pick it up in turkey season, but he's going to bring that over. And that, I got to say, that little package includes things like deer bacon and venison jalapeno sticks and all kinds of really good stuff. So I splurged a little bit. And so as much as I'm looking forward to Ron getting here, I'm looking forward to that meat getting here too. And so, yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to do some habitat work. I'm excited to show him my place and get his, get his input on it because really there's no better woodsman that I know than Ron. And so this is going to truly be expert advice. Yeah. I can't wait to hear that story when we actually get together again. I just hope that all the plans I had uh, mesh with what he's thinking. If not, <laughs> I'm going to have to blow it all up and do something different. I trust him more than myself, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So I think that's it for today. I just want to remind people, though, we still have our membership promotion going on. If you're a podcast listener, whether it be Coffee and Deer or Deer Season 365, if you go and get your membership, be sure to enter the promo code podcast and you will get $5 off $35 membership. I also want to point you to something else talking about winter projects that you can do to sort of beat cabin fever. Uh, our friend and my colleague, Brian Grossman, recently posted on our YouTube channel, five winter habitat projects you can work on now. And so if you're lacking ideas, I thought that was a nice little video he put together. You should check that out. And also a lot of people starting to find shed antlers. I'm one that typically waits till March so that most of them are on the ground, but some people are already finding them. And so with uh, in the north, most of the snow melting, there's your opportunity uh, anywhere else in the country, you should be able to find some at this point. So I encourage you to get out there and take advantage of that. So, hey, folks, if you're not already, please consider subscribing to our show. You can find us anywhere at this point that you can find a podcast. You're going to find Coffee and Deer. So please do that. Uh, also, more information on the National Deer Association. Check us out, deerassociation.com. Check out our, I mentioned our YouTube page already, loaded with resources. Of course, we're very active on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Twitter as well. Folks, can't thank you enough for listening. We really appreciate it. National Deer Association, where we are, united for deer. <laughs>